Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm your host, Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who have devoted their lives to teaching and helping others through meditation. In today's episode, I interview Joe DiNardo. I chose to air this interview Thanksgiving week because Joe's story is about gratitude for the unconditional and abundant love he shared with his wife, Marcia. It's a heartfelt story that follows his journey with Marcia from cancer diagnosis through her death. Joe loved deeply, but also accepted that which he could not change. His Buddhist meditation practice was the foundation for coping and healing during this tumultuous time. He wrote a letter to Marcia as she was dying and shares this along with his story in the recently published book, A Letter to My Wife. Joe reads the letter at the end of this interview and there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Before we begin Joe's story, this podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio app, one of the top 50 apps of the year. I would love for you to give it a try if you haven't already. It's in the app store. Now, here's Joe. Joe DiNardo, it is so nice to have you on our show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for, for doing this interview. It is my pleasure. Yeah. So let's start by telling our listeners a little bit about your meditation practice, how you started with okay. meditation, and sort of tell us a little bit about your studies well, with that. you know, I'm a child of the 60s. Yes. So uh, <laughs> there was a fair amount of... Um, opportunities to experiment with all sorts of different things, and which I did. Uh, when I got into um, finishing law school, I took a little apartment, little small single bedroom apartment on the corner of Elmwood Avenue uh, and the village of what we call Allentown in Buffalo, New in York. In Buffalo, New York, okay. And um, it was a square red brick building with one little apartment upstairs. Um, and downstairs it was a meeting room. And every Friday night, you know, somewhere between 10 and 30 elderly people seemed to show up and go to a meeting. And they always seemed so cheerful and friendly. And I would bump into them as I came down to leave or if I was coming back. They would always be very nice. I mean, in a genuine way. So anyways, one night I said, who are you? I mean, who are you people? Yes. What, what do you do here? Oh, uh, we're members of the Theosophical Society, and uh, we are open to exploring all religions. We're not religious ourselves, uh, and you know most of us though have a very Buddhist approach. You know, and I didn't know what any of that was. Mm-hmm. So you're 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 in your twenties, in your early twenties yeah, at this maybe time, or twenty five, okay, twenty six okay. years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah. And I had grown up in a very very poor Italian family in Rochester, New York. Uh, when I came to Buffalo, it was an eye-opener for me because going to law school meant that I was entering a whole different world than what I had ever come from. Mm-hmm. And that was a big adjustment for me. They said, why don't you come to one of our meetings? Every week, one of our members is asked to give a lecture on some topic, whatever topic they want. So I went. And they were just a fun group of people and I listened to their their talks, you know, from a lawyer's perspective, a trial lawyer's perspective. I wasn't overly impressed with the presentation, 
but they were so genuine. Mm. Did you know before you met these people that you were curious about this, or did they inspire your curiosity? You know, I would say that I, no, the answer is no. I, I didn't know. Um, but I, as I look back on my life, there was one particular experience that I had as a child um, that is very similar to what they describe you should be doing in mindfulness practice. I went to the meetings. Mm -hmm. I said, well, why don't you give a talk? And I said, well, what would you like me to talk on? Well, why don't you give a talk on uh, Zen Buddhism? <laughs> was that random yeah, at right. the time? You, right. said, you weren't a Zen Buddhist. It's a different type of Buddhism. I got a book by um, Suzuki Roshi, mm -hmm. who turns out to have been, not known to me, but a very famous um, Eastern teacher who mm -hmm. came to America, doctor, he was a PhD. He wrote in a crystal clear fashion for me. Mm -hmm. In describing mindfulness practice, he would be telling us, you know, how do you focus your attention on your breath and stay with that as best you can. And very much like learning to ride a bicycle as a kid, you're going to fall off the breath, mm -hmm. but you're going to get right back on again. And you're going to fall off the breath again. And each time you may be able to, you know, keep that attention focused just a little longer. And then I, I recollected that when I was, a, you know, maybe eight, ten years old, through those years, um, because of the situation we were in, my father was an alcoholic. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Uh, he was a great alcoholic, by the way. A great alcoholic. <laughs> a great alcoholic. Meaning he, he, he didn't drank no every harm. day. He, <laughs> but he did no harm. He drank a whole six pack of beer, whatever, that, yeah. that sort of thing. Clearly, he was a practicing alcoholic mm -hmm. and he couldn't hold a job. Um, but there were moments in time when I would get really angry because I would be punished for something that I didn't think I deserved. Think and I would go up to my room and just be just so angry. And then I would say, if I could just focus my attention, if I could get my mind to focus my attention on just one tiny little spot, I wouldn't be feeling this anger like that's I incredible. Yeah, and well, that just sort of came to you. You weren't like studying no. in school or Sunday no. school or anything like that. It was it just, just came to you, and it never. It didn't dawn on you that this was something. Right. You thought I'm just until later myself. in life when mm -hmm. I read this, I said, "Wow, wow." The Buddha's retake on all that because his idea was nothing is permanent. Mm -hmm. Well, that's easy to see. Yes, just it look is. around. Right, nothing is permanent. Right, but he said, "No, no, no." I mean, nothing is permanent. Meaning, if you look inside, you will find that all of your concepts, all of your ideas, even about who and what you are, are impermanent. Mm. And he, the one of the most difficult ideas he shared with us is the idea of no self more like a, a conglomeration, or he would call them aggregates of different things that we now interpret to be me. And were you studying this as a part of your presentation at that time? Well, I wasn't and, going to. Or was but, this... Right, but as I started to read, I'm like, whoa. So how did you make sense of that? Well, you have a lot that's, a, that's very sort of important well, for your having story. Having said a few of their lectures, I realized that 
if I try to do this, okay, what I'm like all the studying that I'm doing, um, it's not going to work. So I actually told him, I said, how about if I do a series of talks? Because this is much more expansive and complicated. And complicated, and I would like to learn more about it. And were you tying it to your childhood because you, you brought up your dad's no, alcoholism? No, I just found as it a... fascinating. Okay. Okay, that I yeah. had that experience many times right. as a kid. So do you think there's something about that in, in that experience for you? Do I you can think... remember telling a woman that I was dating at the time that I was reading about this Buddhist stuff and that I get it for me. Yeah, and wondering wonder why it makes yeah. so much sense to me. But yeah. it did, so yeah. I just kept looking at it. And as I read more and learned more, it made more sense. But it, I realized uh, over a period of time that it wasn't just an intellectual exercise. Right. There was another piece missing, and that's the mindfulness practice, mm -hmm. which I had no idea about. So I bought a little Zafu. <laughs> it's a round cushion. cushion. So you were beginning your practice. Yeah. So at the time, a book came out by Richard Albert, who had been Timothy Leary's partner at Harvard, mm -hmm. LSD experimenter, had traveled to India mm -hmm. and spent, I don't know, a few years there, found a guru, and he came back home, and he was now called Baba Ramdas. Baba means man, mm -hmm. and Ramdas is the name. And he wrote a book called Be Here Now. Right, Ramdas. Uh, yeah, very famous book, yeah. at least in the counterculture. And someone gave me the book, and I read it, and I said, whoa. I, I just could see how all of the stuff for him was laid out in the book, yeah. and how he was getting away from now the artificial creation of that spiritual world and doing it himself. Right. And here you are, this law student, experimenting with meditation on the one hand and drugs on the other hand okay, and right. expanding your mind right. and having these giant questions. So I read the book, mm -hmm. and I don't know what caused me to do this, but I wrote Ram Dass a letter. Mm -hmm. And I said, would you like to come to Buffalo and lead a retreat for you know three and a half days? I said, I'm sure there are people. Oh, you were Your book was famous. Yeah. He writes, yes, I'd be happy to. So he comes to Buffalo. Yeah. I end up, 200 people show up. Oh, wow. Okay. That must yes. have been exciting. Yeah. Yes, we were doing it at a Girl Scout camp oh. just outside of Buffalo. So plenty of room. Right. Um, some of my spiritual friends that I had become friendly with, you know, came and some were running the kitchen and cooking and the whole thing worked out great. Yeah, except my mother decided to commit suicide oh, on Saturday night of the this four-day retreat. And so my brother, who was in attendance, and I got the call. We rushed to Rochester to be there. And uh, we were there, and she's in bed, and we're at her side, my brother and I. And we stayed a bunch of hours. It was clear she was going to be okay. Oh, okay. So we got back at like 8 o'clock in the morning in time for breakfast finished the retreat, but I had spent very little time personally with Ramdas. I guess my my uh, image was I'd get to be like somebody, with, <laughs> but, but I wasn't. But at the end, he asked to see, he sent a note over, someone said, find Joe, and he said, come and, come and speak with me in his tent or wherever he was staying. Yeah. So I did, it was just him and I, and he said, Joe, 
um, I have a suggestion for you. I have a couple of friends, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. They just came back from all over the, you know, Southeast Asia and so on after years of practice. Mm -hmm. And they have purchased a Catholic monastery out in the the countryside of eastern Massachusetts. And they're setting up a meditation center. And I want you to, to tell me, to commit to me, that you will sit one week every other month for the next, you know, six or eight months. I was committed to this. I, in my heart, I, I knew I wanted to follow this path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I called the Insight Meditation Center and they said, well, we are in the middle of the three-month course, but we're allowing, we will allow you to come if Ram Dass says you should come. He's a friend of ours. You, he recommended you, fine with us, come. So I picked the first week. I'd never been there before. I showed up at like seven or eight o'clock at night. And I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I happened to bump into Sharon Salzberg as I was checking in. And one of the other staff members says, Sharon, would you please talk to Joe and give him some instructions, you know, so that he can start sitting and and then tomorrow when the regular whole program He'll have a little uh, yeah, yeah, experience. He'll have some idea. <laughs> right. So she gave me, it was late in the day for her, but she gave me a 25-minute, you know, follow your breath. Right, right. Keep your attention on your breath. Everything's impermanent. Anyways, you know, I go in. It was still like, they, there was a sitting at 9 o'clock or something like that. So I go in, and the room is 80% full. And these people have been there for already for like six weeks. Mm. By the way, it's all in silence. I mean, you don't speak yes. with anybody. They tell you don't. Keep your eyes down. Um, you're here for yourself. Yeah. And so are other people yeah. there for themselves. So even if you feel restless, don't interfere with their space. Uh, but everything is done in silence. And if you have to communicate, write a note, put it on the, tag it on the board. Wow, I, I didn't realize that there was that, that when they said silence, they meant twenty four seven of silence. By the way, that turns out to be the most powerful aspect of the sitting practice. So, did you keep that commitment and and go back for a week every month? Well, for I, you know, what? it all months? made sense to me, yeah. just like it did in the beginning. Yeah, it felt it feels like this all sort of fell into place in a very almost. Um, just such a natural way for you. and felt that way. Right? And so your practice evolved, but you come from a family where your mom was suicidal, your dad was an alcoholic, and then you've had your own challenges. So so now you're, you're in your 20s, you're having all of these experiences where you're really, you know, getting super excited about the meditation practice and your, and Buddhism. How do you integrate it into your life with everything that happens next? So we're going to talk about your the beautiful book that you've just written, and you know I know there are a lot of things that happen along the way, but you meet the the love of your life, and you know it in the first five minutes. Five seconds. seconds. <laughs> Marsha was much older and had been married before. Okay. Okay. We separated uh, and got divorced, and I had known Marsha because she worked for a friend of mine in a building company, uh, a developer and a home residential home builder. 
Um, and so he and I were always talking. So she oftentimes would answer the phone if the receptionist was busy. And I started, you know, to sort of just flirt with her on the phone. I knew what she looked like. So I knew she was like. Adorable. Yeah. <laughs> but it did, I didn't think Joe DiNardo had a, uh, an opportunity yeah. Yeah. there. But you were uh, going to try. Well, anyway. somebody well, somebody who works for Elliot, the, the friend she was working for, mentioned to me, by the way, you know, Marsha loves your voice. I said, <laughs> what do you mean? She says, she is infatuated by your voice. Well, now I'm saying to myself, so my occasional calls that she gets and that we flirt and so on, are like are being ex- accepted Aww. in a favorable way. Yes. So, so that's when I invited her to lunch. Mm-hmm. And when we sat down together, it was like, for me, wow. just like bells run off. Aww. Was she interested in meditation? No. No, that wasn't her thing. And did you did you teach her or did you bring her into no, it and this remained your thing? She was a very confident mm-hmm. in her approach, which was she considered herself very intuitive. Yeah, yeah. So I always considered her very spiritual mm-hmm. because... Whether you're spiritual or intuitive or whatever you are, if you're kind and compassionate, what difference does it make how you get to that place? No, it's true. It's true. That's your practice. Yeah, that's your practice, practice. right. She sounds like she... As I I practiced more and listened to the Dharma talks by the teachers uh, at the meditation center, you know, I began to see the world in a different way. Take the Dalai Lama. Everybody loves him, and especially if you meet him, one of the most compassionate people on the planet. Um, and he often says, and he doesn't, when he talks, he doesn't try to convince you to become a Tibetan Buddhist. Mm-hmm. It's never, that's never, he's never selling like who he is or what he is to be so your practice. Yeah, he's just being who he's he not is. Say, right. He's not saying that even it's a practice that you should do. Mm-hmm. He is more interested in what is the feeling that you get from whatever your practice is? Does it make you happy? Does it help you cultivate compassion for other people so that you, you, you are compassionate mm-hmm. to anyone and everyone? If that's the end result, <laughs> then it doesn't matter whether you're Catholic or Jewish or Muslim, or whatever the real practice might be. So I want to talk about how your practice has helped you with grief, um, because so many of us deal with grief on so many different levels, and this was such an incredibly um, heartbreaking, tender-hearted experience for you to have to go through, and I and I kind of want to understand. I want to tell our listeners a little bit about the story. I know, you know, tell them a little bit about Marsha, but what inspired you to write this book? Um, and if you could give us a little bit of, of that story of learning of her okay. illness and how you, how you coped each step of the way with your practice. I'm just a human being, and when the diagnosis was explained to us. And she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Stage four. Stage four. First, so, they thought it was stage, stage one. one, and then very yeah. quickly found, They found this little spot they on her liver that they kept saying, oh, it's nothing. Right. It was going to probably be nothing. Right. And it was something. It was something, 
And of course, in the world of pancreatic cancer, once it has metastasized, there's no operations because the fear of uh, suppressing the immune system further and allowing the cancer to take a stronger foothold, it becomes almost like malpractice to, to do surgery. So the only options are A, do nothing, right, or B, chemo, uh, and after the chemo, radiation, mm-hmm. with the idea of shrinking the tumors. That's what the chemo is supposed to do. That's what the radiation is supposed to do. But uh, as anybody who's ever heard about pancreatic cancer knows, it is a, you know, it is a relentless type of cancer. Mm-hmm. I had been a serious practitioner for 37, 38 years, a long time, yeah. with a lot of serious practice. I feel I have developed a very strong foundation and a strong practice. So when we were told what we were dealing with, I had, of course, multiple you know reactions. First, just like a human being, it was a crushing blow to actually think that I was going to lose my wife. And at the same time, I became infused in every cell of my body with a sense of equanimity mm-hmm. and of love. Yes, you talked about that in your book, which was breathtaking. And. I have to say, it was an unconditional love. I didn't care what Marcia felt or did towards me. I knew that I loved her and would be there every minute. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I was. I was there every minute, every chemo session. And if you've never had the experience of watching someone on chemo, it's they go from the first hour of being able to chat a little bit and sit in the chair to suddenly they start to feel sick and they start to curl up and get nauseous and sleepy and sick. Mm-hmm. And then the last two hours, they're just being being poisoned, right. but not quite to death yet. That's the whole idea. Right. That's what chemo does. Yeah. It kills things. Yeah, and you're watching this. You watch it. Your... You watch it multiple times. Right. And it's cumulative. So that the more you watch it, it gets worse. It never gets like, oh, I've seen this. Mm. It gets worse and worse. I felt early on that this was going to be a challenge and an opportunity for me to work as much as for Marsha as with myself. Not for myself, but with work with myself to be able to cope with this in a human, Mm -hmm. compassionate, loving way that wasn't like, oh, I'm a Buddhist, you know. Yeah. None of that. I wanted to just be Joe DiNardo, full of love and compassion for Marsha, and full of gratitude to all of the people who would send us notes and, and uh, emails and phone calls, 
uh, to, just to say they had her on their prayer list at their church, mm. or she was part of their loving kindness meditation at their Buddhist center, or you know, part of you know, so one of our friends went to um, Jerusalem and, and put a note in the wall, mm. you know, and, and on and on things like that. Wow! So it's coming together of all this beautiful yeah. energy around her and, and you. I have to say, I was not someone who believed this before, and. I might have believed it philosophically, but I never really believed it. That, that, that that generation of that much love and and uh, loving kindness for my wife and toward her actually had an effect on her in some way. Mm. And she lived for two years post-diagnosis. That's incredible. But I think that's a tribute to you and to Marsha that you had all of that energy around the two of you. You were like the magnets for Very that. Helpful. It was it, it was inspiring, and you know, look again the sense of gratitude I still carry mm -hmm. for all of those people. Yeah. Uh, like I say, it's like what uh, what I understand um, the Dalai Lama saying: it doesn't matter, like. What path you're following? It doesn't matter what you call it. It's right. like let's be. But those people were there. They were sending that loving energy. Right. Um, and we were receiving it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the first year was difficult. But you know, to me, they told me she had maybe six months, and if you made it to twelve months, that would be like. Something quite unheard of. So you're grateful every day. Well, a year, the year mark is coming up, and I'm like, what's supposed to happen? Right. And nothing torrid happened. She had created a bit of a bucket list, and we were trying to check them off, different Traveling, trips and, and people to trips. be with. Yeah. 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 I increased the intensity of my practice, and in a sense was grateful for this, these feelings that I had that were so powerful. And the practice gave me an opportunity to work with those, mm -hmm. to let them be there, but not to try to enhance the feelings or to reject the feelings in any particular way. And I felt to some degree I was able to do that. Yeah. And that's the beauty of that practice, right? Yeah. That you can say, I feel horrible. horrible. And then <laughs> that's, that's putting it mildly, but that you can watch your feelings and your emotions and your sensations and then still not kind well, of dive well, headfirst into them all. A lot of uh, meditators, experienced meditators, will say, um, there's nothing like a good sit to ruin a good day. Oh. <laughs> because... You know, when you sit and allow things to, anything can happen. Yeah. Uh, any, any thoughts. But anyways, I was working with your emotions. The, my emotions and the loss of my wife seemed imminent. Right. And, and it allowed me to prepare myself because it was inevitable. Yes. It yes. Was, and then when the inevitable started, that last month or so, um, it wasn't something out of the ordinary for me. It didn't take me by surprise. 
Um, I was able to continue, I think, with my uh, unconditional love and care for my wife. Um, we slept every night that we were home together in the same bed. And even though she never felt good one day, each night when I got in bed, I could reach my hand over and put it on her shoulder gently because she hurt everywhere and just leave it there. And I, I think she took comfort in that, yeah. and I did too. I, I knew that Marsha was within days of passing away. Yes. It was clear to me, not, maybe not to everybody else, but I, I could see she, her body was a skeleton. Yeah. Her face was beautiful. Always stayed beautiful. Uh, you know, she was beginning to hallucinate. And that's one of the classic yes. signs when people are nearing death. So I, I started to write a letter to her. I will get through it. I'm not going to get up there and, and, and break down in tears in the, so that everybody can cry with me. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to read this letter. How'd that go? Did you, did you break what? down and well, cry? Walking up to the uh, lectern, I just suddenly had this experience like, this is not a problem, Joe. I think I read it in a fashion that was um, sweet and loving, uh, and, and, and my voice, I hope, conveyed you know my love and compassion for Marcia. I think it did. But it's a beautiful book, and the book is called A Letter to My Wife. Yes. And would you read the letter? Would you mind? I won't it? mind doing it. I don't know if I can do it, but I'll do try. Do you think you'll be able to? Yeah. Well, um, I haven't done read it in you months, haven't? months okay. and months. So. All right. It's a little book, um, and it starts with this letter that Joe read at her funeral, and he's going to read it for us. My dearest love, I read this letter tonight on tear-stained paper. My heart lies in pieces on our bedroom floor. But I wanted to share something with you before you go on your journey. How or why this happened, I don't know. But I do know that I love you so desperately that the thought of you not lying next to me ever again is too painful to think about. Watching you suffer and endure one treatment after another and seeing you ravaged and unable to eat for months was the hardest thing I've ever done. But nothing compared to your suffering, my love. I know that. For two years I knew this day would come, but you made me never really believe it. I've begged and prayed that you would never leave me yet. Inevitably, here I am holding your hand, surrounded by family, and you so slowly slipping away breath by breath. But how can you look so beautiful, even after you've slipped away? I knelt there, asking you, please turn to me. Say you felt okay, but you were gone, and oh, how my heart broke into pieces. I remember two years ago when you were admitted to the hospital for what everyone thought was a simple scope and a snip out a gallstone, maybe put a small stent. Well, they did this stent, but the doctor said he didn't see any gallstones and that your gallbladder was fine. I asked, then what caused the blockage? 
A growth on the pancreas seemed to be pushing a duck closed, causing all the pain and backup, he replied. What do you mean a growth? I mean that I can't help you, that you need to change your treatment options. What are you saying? I'm saying you should go to Roswell. I knew he meant the Roswell Park Cancer Institute. What? Are you saying my wife has a cancerous tumor on her pancreas? I'm saying you should go to Roswell. Jerk. I saw your face go white, and your eyes teared up for the moment. In that instant, I had two overwhelming feelings. First, the fear and sadness of what this might mean for you, for us. But at the same moment, I was completely awash with the most incredible sense of love for you, pure, unconditional love. I knew then that I wanted to do and would be there for every step of wherever this journey might take you. I never knew how much I loved you, and in that moment I knew and experienced a love I'd never shared or experienced before. Thank you, my sweet. Know this. Juliana, our daughter, is going to be okay. You have skillfully built a wonderful village around her with Haley, Aaron, Mona, all her cousins, and of course family and friends. We will all protect her and guide her and let her know she's loved and accepted in the world. Your family is going to be okay. What a fierce protector you were for them. How you love them all. I'm so happy that in your final moments, they could be there right beside us and say farewell to the daughter, sister, aunt that they loved. Your mom, she will be okay. I know the thought of her burying her young husband and now her even younger daughter caused you such distress. But all of us will care for her now, so please do not worry. Me? We promised each other that we would always tell the truth, so no lies now. I'm not okay, and I'll never be okay. Okay is coming home from work, lying on the couch with a glass of wine and watching you glide around the kitchen, working your magic, preparing dinner. Okay is going out to Hutch's or Giancarlo's, wherever, for dinner and just talking and sharing for hours. Okay is taking one of our trips to Naples or somewhere else you plan with the whole family or with Chris and Andrea. Okay is holding you in my arms and loving you so hard that tears often flowed from our eyes. Okay is here with me. That is okay. So I'm not okay, but I will be here for Juliana, our vast array of friends and our families, and I will be fine. Maya Angelou wrote, They will never remember what you said. They will never remember what you did. But they will always remember how you made them feel. And oh, how you made us feel. Your smile, your sparkling eyes, your pure pleasure in family and friends. You made each and every person that knew you feel a real connection, a real affection, and a real acceptance without judgment. Your posse of girlfriends near and far I marveled at how you made each one feel so loved and that each had special connection with you. I'll never know how you did it, and they will each miss you so in their own way. Your nieces and nephews, how happy you made them feel each time they were with you. Special, my love. You made each feel so special. We love this song. 
Bruce Springsteen wrote, We said we'd walk together, baby, come what may, that come the twilight should we lose our way. As if we're walking, a hand should slip free. I'll wait for you. Should I fall behind, wait for me. Well, your hand has slipped free. So go, please. And if it takes 10,000 years, I will find you again. Have no fear as you travel. You are slipping away now. I see it. I know it. Holding your hand is the greatest privilege of my life. Thank you. Now go, sweetheart. Your work is done here. Your suffering is soon over. Take as much of me as you want as you embark upon your journey. Your devoted and loving husband, Joe. Thank you so much. So beautiful. Um, thank you for being with us. It's just such a, your, your story is such a gift to so many people. And thank you. What a story it is. Thank you. So much beauty and grace and love. And well, it was a privilege and an honor to be with her for so many years. And I read somewhere a quote that goes like this mm. Grief and great grief is the price you pay for love. So, mm. if the price is great, mm -hmm. then I'm paying. That's because the love was great. Yeah, and it, and it was a great love. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much to Joe for sharing the letter and his story. Joe's book, A Letter to My Wife, is now available on Amazon.com. Once again, if you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio App in the App Store. See you next week. <laughs>